Let's pray. Father, we read a psalm earlier in our service, Psalm 29, that spoke to us of your voice. And we thank you that you have a voice. We thank you that you have a word, that you have spoken, that you are speaking, and you're doing it through your timeless, inerrant, inspired book, namely the book that sits before us and the section that sits before us in the book of Exodus, chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. Would you speak this morning through your book, through your word? My mouth is not your mouth, but would you use my mouth? You use donkeys' mouths. Would you use my mouth? Father, speak to us this morning for our building up, for our encouragement, and to point us to our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen. Well, second verse, same as the first. This week, the people of Israel are continuing to grumble in the wilderness. This is the third account of such grumbling. It started in chapter 15. Really, their grumbling started back even before chapter 15, but the most recent episodes have been in chapter 15 with the water that was bitter, and they grumbled about that, and then lacking food in the wilderness in Exodus 16, and they grumbled about that. And we saw last week how the Lord promised to provide manna for them daily and quail occasionally as they were journeying through the wilderness. And now God has led his people to a place called Rephidim, which is another stop on their journey to Sinai as they make their way from the Red Sea through the wilderness to that mountain. And Rephidim means resting place. And you might be thinking, along with how the people of Israel thought, some resting place, huh? Here's another place where we don't have any water. Now, this is not the first time they've been in this situation. What should they have done? Let's take a little test class. What should the people of Israel have done when they encountered this test? They've been through previous tests almost exactly like this. They've been led out through the desert to a place that offers nothing to them. Here's what they should have done. Elders, or maybe the people should have initiated this. That would have been even better. The people initiate a prayer meeting. And they say, Lord, you are among us. You have demonstrated that you are among us relentlessly and passionately as you have displayed your power and grace and kindness to us again and again, though we have deserved none of it. And yet your hand has parted the Red Sea when there was an army against our backs. Your hand has made water sweet right before our eyes and led us to a plentiful oasis called Elim. You rained manna upon us day after day after day. You sent quail upon the ground miraculously, inexplicably. Would you do it again, O oh God? Would you demonstrate your power? Would you demonstrate that we are your people? Would you demonstrate that we are yours and that you are ours and that you are truly among us? That's what they should have done. And God would have answered. And God would have provided for them. But what do they do instead? Is the Lord among us or not? They complained, and this time it's even worse. I don't know if you've noticed this, but the, the progression of their grumbling is getting worse. In chapter 14, if you want to look there quickly, chapter 14, verses 11 and 12, 
where we see their grumbling by the Red Sea, notice what Moses writes about their grumbling there. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt, leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Now, we're not told how many of the people of Israel did that, but the assumption, I think, can be drawn is that it was, it was a fewer number. It wasn't the whole congregation revolting against Moses. And then in chapter 15, where we get their next instance of grumbling, in verse 24, it says the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what shall we drink? And then in chapter 16, verse 2, we get this word, and the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses. And now in chapter 17, verse 2, we reach a whole new level of hostility. Therefore, the people quarreled. It's the first time that word's been used, and we're going to talk about what that means. And said, give us water to drink. It has reached a point of hostility in their hearts toward God. They are insubordinate, and they are revolting against God. But something worse is actually going on here. Israel is hardening their heart like Pharaoh. Only they're not doing it in the face of God's judgment. They're doing it in the face of God's kindness, which is even more wicked. Because God is pouring out grace upon grace on them, and they are continuing to harden their hearts. We learn an early lesson here, brothers and sisters, that suffering will not leave us the same. It will have a positive or negative impact on us, either leading us closer to God or further away from God. And just so you know, suffering is not inevitably sanctifying. It has to be purposed to that end by us. That's why James tells us in James chapter 1, consider it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, knowing that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Let steadfastness have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. See, there's an intentionality required. We have to lean into that. We have to collapse on Christ. We have to plead with God for mercy. We have to ask him to sanctify the trial to us, and he will do that. This is why Psalm 95, verses 7 through 9, picking up on this very theme and teaching the people of Israel about it, say, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, talking about this very instance, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof though they had seen my work. So don't be like that. Don't be like that. Today, if you hear his voice, don't grumble. Don't complain. Don't put the Lord to the test. Hebrews 3 quotes this psalm and makes application to our New Covenant church communities when it says, exhort one another every day as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You've heard that verse before, right? about the importance of encouraging one another every day. Do you know what the primary sphere in which that exhortation comes? Grumbling. Grumbling. Exhort one another every day so that you don't become like this. You don't get in this kind of funk. That's only going to happen if the church is the church 
And the church is helping one another not be this way by exhorting and encouraging one another every day to not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, which is so characteristic of the people of Israel in these chapters. We need to challenge one another when we grumble. We need to say to one another, stop, stop. Don't talk to me about that. Say it a little bit nicer than that, but sometimes we need to be called on it. Go and talk to the person concerned. Or go and talk to God. Go and talk to God. Since he sent the circumstance about which you're concerned. That's one of the ways we encourage one another. It's not the only way. We encourage one another by pointing each other to the promises of God and reminding each other of God's past faithfulness and his future promises and all that he's done. And We, we don't just say stop it. But we do do that. We have to tell each other that. Those sorts of things. That's not the main point of the sermon, though, how to help each other through grumbling, although there's some application there. But what I want us to see in this particular instance, this third instance of grumbling in the wilderness in Exodus 17, 1 through 7, is that there is, I already mentioned that the hostility is ramping up and it's getting more intense. And what I want to show you this morning is that this passage actually demonstrates that Israel is suing God. They are taking God to court in the wilderness. It's not just been an instance where they've been bothered, where they're upset about God's providence, where they're concerned. No, they are actually now ready to take God to court about his promises. And I'm going to show you that in this passage this morning. This morning, as we watch the events unfold in verses 1 through 7, we're going to see three things. We're going to see a lawsuit against God. We're going to see a trial by God. And we're going to see the execution of God. So number one, let's look at the lawsuit that is brought against God in verses 2 and 3. Let's read those verses again. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Now, before we get into the lawsuit, let's just stop there for a second. Moses has been the recipient of these complaints over and over and over again. He gets in verse 3. Could you imagine? This is Moses being incredibly sanctified in this moment. But I don't think I would be nearly as sanctified. I think I would be a little bit snippy, a little bit sarcastic, and retort something like this. Yeah, that's exactly why God brought us out here. He, He brought us out here so that he would kill you. Because that's what he's demonstrated over and over again, is his desire to kill you. In fact, when you were in Egypt, he killed you there, didn't he? And then when he brought you out and in the Red Sea, oh, oh yeah, he, he, drowned, he drowned you. Remember how you were under that water? Remember how you were buried under it and it wasn't the Egyptians? Oh, yeah, and when he brought you to the water, remember how he didn't change it? Remember how he made you drink that nasty water just so he could make you suffer and so you would heave and die and hopefully get dehydrated and die in the wilderness and then vultures come and pick at you? Remember that? And then when we were out there in the wilderness and we didn't have any food and, 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 and remember how he didn't give you anything and he watched you wilt and then he filmed a video about it and he was like, let's show the starving children over in the Middle East. Like, let's, let's do that because that's what really brings God pleasure is watching his children wilt away and suffer. He didn't say all that, but I mean, that's what they're doing. That's what they're accusing God of. They're bringing a lawsuit against him. 
They're bringing a legal charge against God through Moses. Moses is being charged as God's representative, but it's ultimately God who is the one on trial. Now, why do I say they're taking him to court? There's no, there, you didn't see a judge here. There's no gavel. There's no attorneys. There's no jury that we see. There's no courtroom. How is it, it a trial? Well, I want you to notice a couple of words. The first word is in verse 2, quarrel. It's used twice. And also the word test, when he says, why do you test the Lord? Then if you go down to verse 7, you see these words show up again, why they called the place Massa and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord. So these two words, quarrel and test, are very important. First, the word test, the people tested God. Now, before we get to the meaning, just think about this for a second. This is a dangerous role reversal. God is the one who is testing his people. We never have the right to test God, except when he tells us we can test him, like Malachi 3, right, concerning giving. He says, test me. But that's his invitation. But mo- we don't get to just test God on our own terms. We don't, it's God's role to test us, not our role to test God. And what does it mean to test God? Well, it's to put him on probation, It's to withhold trust from him until he gives further evidence for his trustworthiness. So they're they're really putting the Lord on probation. They're saying, you haven't given us any real evidence to trust you. You've never proven yourself faithful to us. And then the word quarrel is used in other contexts, especially in the Old Testament, to mean to charge or to bring a suit against, a lawsuit It has legal connotations. The Hebrew word used in these verses is the term for a covenantal lawsuit. Israel is taking God to court for a crime they believe he has committed. Israel is suing God for breach of contract, or we might call it covenant breaking. God made promises to them that that he would be their God and that they would be his people and that he would deliver them. And Israel, from their perspective, believed that God is not holding up his end of the deal. He is not keeping his promises. They are charging him with not keeping his promise to be their God and they his people. And they begin to present their grievances, which are really formal legal accusations. They charge him with three crimes. I want you to see what these crimes are. First of all, they charge God with neglecting to provide for them. Give us water to drink. This is God's end of the deal. He's not keeping it. Give us water. We need water. We need water. When God isn't doing what they expected him to do, they start making demands. No please, no thank you. Just give us what we need and give it now. And then second, not only do they charge God with neglecting to provide for them, but they charge God with refusing to protect them. Why did you bring us out of Egypt, they say. When God led them in a way that they did not anticipate, they doubted their commitment or God's commitment to them. Aren't we quick to do the same? Aren't we quick to, when God doesn't do what we expect him to do, we start making demands? Or when God doesn't lead us in the way we anticipate, we doubt his commitment? How quick we all are to forget all that he has done for us when a moment of crisis comes. God had delivered them in Exodus 14. 
He had led them in Exodus 15. He had provided for them in Exodus 16. And yet they come to sue him in Exodus 17. Not only do they charge God with neglecting to provide for them and refusing to protect them, but thirdly, they charge God with failing to be present with them. Is the Lord among us or not? I mean, that is a, it's just, that's a horrendous way to say it, to put it lightly. I mean, is God really among us or not? I mean, it's, it's said with pride and a degree of malice and evil. Just, I mean, is God ever going to show himself to be our God or what? I mean, when is he going to provide for us? Listen, I know that pillar of clouds right there, but I mean, come on. When God doesn't do what they think he should do, they sue him. It's not really him that they want. It's what he does for them. And there's the chief sin. They're not interested in being God's people. They're interested in God's benefits. Behold the difference between believers and unbelievers. The vast majority of these people are unregenerate and unconverted. This is not a picture of the old covenant church. This is a picture of lost people. Now, there are certainly believers in their midst, no doubt. But this is a mixed bag. And with most of them, according to 1 Corinthians 10, God was not pleased. Namely, they were unregenerate and not his people. And so we see the profile of a sinful heart here. We see the profile of what an unconverted person looks like demanding from God, saying that God hasn't done anything for them, provided for them, withholding trust from God until he actually does something that they approve of. They're not, they don't, they're not interested in serving God on God's terms. That's the difference between a believer and an unbeliever. An unbeliever submits to God's terms and says, Lord, whatever terms you have, that's the ones I want. An unbeliever says, I'll serve God if, or I'll do this if but we try to smuggle in some of our perspectives or we morph God into a different image that he's not at all. Well, my God would never do that. That's because your God doesn't exist. The substance of the accusation they are making is essentially boiled down to this. They're alleging that God has committed a capital offense of murder. He's being accused of abandoning Israel to die in the wilderness. That's their case. And they've tried to present evidence to show God's guilt. People often put God to test in this way. We demand that he prove himself to us instead of starting with God and evaluating our experience from his point of view. We begin with ourselves, starting with our circumstances, and then judge God on the basis of that and demand that he explain himself. It's the, it's the wrong way it works. C.S. Lewis observed it this way many years ago when he wrote, the ancient man approached God as the accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man, the roles are reversed. He's the judge. God is in the dock. He is quite, quite a kindly judge if God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, and disease. He's ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal, but the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is in the dock. That's what's going on here. That's what's going on all throughout human history. God, explain yourself to me. We don't have to explain ourselves to God, but God has to explain himself to us. So that's the lawsuit. 
That's the lawsuit. And it's founded upon the most inappropriate and unjust grounds imaginable. It is a pseudo-suit if there ever was one. I mean, any competent judge would, would condemn them for even bringing a suit like this. <laughs> this God of blameless integrity you are accusing of the worst possible offenses. Let's see what God does. Point number two, we've seen the lawsuit against God. Now let's look at the trial by God. God's going to convene the trial. It's our, the, the trial's already started, but, but God's going to move in now and begin, begin interacting with the people. So look at verse 4. So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. You notice that? There's another evidence that we got a trial going on because they're getting ready to execute God's representative for the capital offense of murder. And they're going to murder the one whom God has chosen to represent him. So that Moses is doing the right thing here. He's going to God and, and saying, what, what shall I do? And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people taking with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Dun, 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 dun. That's what we should think. Uh-oh. Moses goes to God and he asks what should be done and he says that they are almost ready to stone him, that is, carry out the death penalty. And this mention, like I said, is further evidence that Israel was conducting some kind of trial but it's clear from other passages of Scripture that speak of this incident that God, that, or sorry, that Moses and Aaron did not, did not do this. They weren't, trying to, they weren't trying to represent themselves. They were trying to represent, represent God. And so God tells the people to pass. God tells Moses to pass before the people. And you notice what he says they are to do, he, are, they are, he is to do. Look at verse 5 again. Pass before the people, taking with you some of the elders. There's the jury. Have the, have the elders there to see this so that we, we can verify it. And then take the staff. Now, what is that staff used for? That staff that whenever God tells Moses to take it up, in either chapter 9, verse 23, chapter 10, verse 13, or chapter 14, verse 16, is always an instrument of judgment. It's always an instrument of judgment. So what, if, if we stopped at verse 5, we would assume that this means God is wiping this generation out. Moses is being commanded to go and take the elders with him and pass before Israel, and he's going to do something. He's going to strike the ground. It's just going to open up and swallow them up. Or something like that's going to happen. Or he's going to raise the staff and the pillar of cloud that's above them is going to throw fire down upon them and burn them all to a crisp. I mean, something like that. That's what we, that's what we should expect when, when we read Moses, get the staff. Get the staff. We shouldn't be thinking, oh, something really good's going to happen here. No, something really bad's going to happen here. You can feel the tension in the air. And Israel has got to feel that they are doomed. But what does God do? Look at verse 6. We've seen the lawsuit against God, the trial by God. Now I want you to see the execution of God. The execution of God. Verse 6. Behold, God says to Moses, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. 
and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. Again, the jury being present. Verse 7, and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? So let's pay some, spend some time in verse 6. Notice what God says first. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock of Horeb. God says that he is going to stand before Moses. Again, role reversal. The people are testing the Lord. The Lord should be testing them. God stands before Moses. Moses stands before God. But God is saying here, I'm going to stand before you. Now, throughout Scripture, in legal context, this is usually, this, this, this phrase, I will stand before you, usually means a guilty criminal who must stand before God. For instance, Deuteronomy 19.17, Then both parties to this dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who were in office in those days. So it's, 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 now it's the presentation of the verdict. So by God standing before Moses, he is saying, okay, here's the verdict. And again, the tension is in the air because they don't know what Moses is doing. But God has told Moses that he is going to stand before, the, before Moses and he's going to get on the rock. So this is obviously some sort of visible manifestation or theophany of God. We don't really know what's going on here, but, but God says he's going to put himself on the rock before Moses. However, in this trial, it is God who is standing in the guilty place. He stands before Moses taking Israel's place on the rock. Though innocent, he is substituting himself for the guilty. Now, we're going to come back to this more in a minute. But keep your eyes on Jesus and be thinking about him as we come to that part. I will stand before you on the rock, he says, and what is Moses to do? He says, and you will strike the rock. Now, before we get to the strike part, what's Horeb? What's the significance of Horeb? Look back at chapter 3, verse 1. Hold your finger, Exodus 17, go back to chapter 3. Now Moses was keeping the flock, this is verse 1 of chapter 3. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. So this place has significance in Moses' life because this was the place that God initially revealed himself to Moses and called Moses to be the mediator who would lead the people of Israel out of bondage. Now, there, what happened at Horeb? It was a manifestation of the powerful holiness of God. Moses was trembling. He was fearful. He took off his shoes because it was holy ground. This was a fearful, trembling instance. And now here... Horeb becomes a manifestation of God's holiness, but in a different way. It becomes a manifestation of God's holiness in mercy. It becomes a manifestation of God's holiness in grace. God places himself on the rock, and then he instructs Moses, strike it. 
Strike it. God is taking the judgment his people deserve. He is telling Moses to judge him, to send the plagues down upon him for his people's grumbling and unbelief. And then what happens? Water will come out and the people will drink. Now, what, 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 what is going on here? What is this? I mean, granted, this is not unusual. This shouldn't be unusual. God has always responded so far in Exodus 15, 16, and now 17 to the grumbling of his people with grace. We saw what he did with the water in chapter 15. We saw what he did with the food in the desert in chapter 16. Now we're seeing what he does with the water again in chapter 17. But this time, because it has reached a new level of hostility and a new level of where God is being sued for breach of contract, where he's being told he's a covenant-breaking God, what does God do? He gets on the rock and he judges himself. He judges himself. What does that point us to? Brothers and sisters, that points us to Christ. Because it was on the cross that God judged himself. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We've been bouncing back and forth between Exodus and 1 Corinthians 10, it seems, the last several weeks. And that's mainly because 1 Corinthians 10 is the New Testament teaching on what Exodus 17 is really all about. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 1, we read the following. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and they all passed through the sea. This is talking about the Exodus. Verse 2, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food. That's Exodus 16. And all drank the same spiritual drink. There's Exodus 17. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was, say it. See, it's nice when you don't have to make this stuff up, right? When the apostles of the New Testament tell you what a story means. This story tells us about Christ. This story tells us of a God who is willing to be judged for his people's sins. A God who is willing in mercy and grace to say, instead of them paying the penalty, let me pay the penalty. Instead of them absorbing the judgment, let me absorb the judgment. Instead of them taking the wrath, let me take the wrath. And that's what's happening here. God is symbolically demonstrating his willingness to absorb the guilt of his people in and on himself. And we see this in Christ supremely because Christ is the God-man. Christ is the Son of God who came to do this very thing, to live a perfect life and die a sacrificial death on the cross so that whoever would turn from sin and embrace him as Lord and Savior would be forgiven of their sin, restored to fellowship with God, and have their iniquity and guilt atoned for. It's the gospel. This is why we read in Deuteronomy 33.8, the summary of what Exodus 17.2 says, you tested him at Massa 
with him you quarreled at the waters of Meribah. And Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16 says, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. And this is why we read in Matthew chapter 4, Then the devil took him, Jesus, to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, Jesus, on the rock, taking way up high, putting him on the temple. And the devil says to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down. He'll catch you. He said he will command his angels concerning you. Satan quoting the very word of God back to Jesus. And then Jesus quoting the very word of God back to Satan says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. You know why he's doing that? Because of Exodus 17. Because they did, and we did. Before we came to Christ, we lived for, on our own terms. We wanted God, but as long as he bowed to us. But then when God brought us to himself, we submitted to God on his terms, and we did that because Christ drew us. Because Christ fulfilled the law for us. We put the Lord our God to the test. The people of Israel did. Christ didn't. And you know why Christ didn't, as Tim Hoke says to the kids at Heritage Christian School so often? Because he knew you would. He knew you would. He knew I would. And he didn't. And then what happens when the water, or sorry, when the, when the rock is stricken, water comes out. What happened when Jesus was stricken in John 19? Water. Out of the side. But also, according to Psalm 105, Verse 41, God opened the rock and water gushed out. And it flowed through the desert like a river. Oh, if that were not a testimony of the value of the work of Christ. He was stricken and it gushed like a river in the desert. It wasn't just a trickle. He didn't strike the rock and it's like, all right, come on kids. Let's get it. Oh, trying to get something. No, it gushed. The rock broke open and rivers flooded the desert. This is what Christ did. As a result of Moses striking the rock, the water flowed out. It gushed out. It flowed through the desert for the people to drink. And the people will drink and have their thirst assuaged. God is judged so that people can get water without God judging them. Just as Moses struck the rock, instead of striking his people, the water flowed out to save them. So Jesus was struck by the rod of God's justice for our salvation. And instead of striking the rock, God struck himself in the person of his son. And what happened as a result of that? John 14 says, But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. John 7, verse 37 and 38, Jesus says again, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, anyone! This is a great feast. This is a huge amount of people. And he says, Any of you in this whole area want to come get in on this? There's plenty of water to drink. Plenty of water. Never to run out. Let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, John 7, 38, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus is a magnificent Savior. He is an abundant Savior. He has enough righteousness and pardon in him to forgive multitudes of multitudes of millions of millions because he was stricken and out of him flowed rivers of water. 
This is what one Scottish preacher in the 18th century said, commenting on Christ's work here. He says, the water flowed when the rock was smitten, not in scanty measure, but in large abundance. The miraculous stream was not exhausted, though many hundred thousand men with their herds drank it. Nor were the dry places of that sandy desert able to imbibe the copious moisture. So inexhaustible is the fullness of Jesus Christ, from which all sorts of men, the Jews, the Gentiles, the barbarians, the Scythians, the bond, the free, may receive all sorts of blessings. You are not restricted from him, O children of men. This river of God, which is full of water, can never run dry, nor be exhausted, however abundantly we drink of its refreshing streams. Listen, brother and sister, struggling with sin, feeling like, I did it again. He's going to run out of mercy for me. I'm never going to have enough to get there. You are going to so get there. You are going to have everything you need. You're going to have abundant supplies of mercy and pardon for every sin. You will commit from this day forward all the way to glory. It won't even have dipped a trickle in the bucket of all the mercy that God has for you in Christ. So never let the devil come and say, oh, you've sinned too much. You've sinned too many times. He has no mercy for you. There's no way you've done it too much. No, his work on the cross and his resurrection is so death-defeating and so wrath-absorbing and so justice-taking and so mercy-giving and so love-providing that you never have any fear whatsoever that he will give you all that you need. He will abundantly pardon your sins or toss in the depths of the sea, never to be remembered again. Christ's work is a sufficient work. It's not a small work. It's a huge work, and it's a glorious work. And praise God, it's a sufficient work. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word, for its reminders to us of the preciousness of Jesus Christ, of how every story whispers his name, Every account in the Old Testament and the New Testament point us to him, point us to our Savior, point us to the one who alone can atone for us. Any among us this morning who have yet to come to Christ, who have yet to say, Jesus, I am yours and you're mine. I want you. I want you to be my Savior. I want you to be my Lord. I'm tired of living life on my own terms. I don't want to live in this grumbling, frustrated, difficult, accusing state. I want to be reconciled to you. May you move in the hearts of friends here this morning who have yet to close with Christ. Draw them close to you. Move in their hearts by your Holy Spirit. Help them to embrace Christ alone. Give them faith. Give them repentance. Give them a new heart. Regenerate them by the power of your Spirit. Father, thank you for the the rivers of living water that flow to us for our salvation. Thank you that it's not a a scanty stream. It's not a, but it's it's an ocean in the desert. It's as we make our way on our wilderness journey through this life, you will provide for us. You will provide for us. You will take care of us. It's one of the biggest lessons we learn from these section, this section of Scripture. So thank you for providing our deepest needs in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for sending him. Thank you for having him live a perfect life. Thank you for having him die a, a substitutionary death. Thank you for raising him from the dead to prove that your word is true and that your promises are trustworthy and what you, what you intended to accomplish, you did accomplish. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in just a moment, we're going to stand and sing, and then we're going to have a brief Heritage Kids video. I hope we'll, we'll, we'll hope for that, and uh, that'll then then Pastor Keith Withrow will come and, and lead us through our announcements and benediction. So let's stand together and sing. <laughs>